0: Welcome to This Day in History class. I'm Eve, and today is March 10th, 2019. And we'll be continuing our recognition of Women's History Month with another special guest who's coming on to the show today to talk about Lillian Wald. Lillian Wald was born on this day in 1867. She was an American nurse, a social worker, and an author. Our special guest today is Marjorie Field, who teaches history at Babson College. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. So can you just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and how you got into Lillian Wald?
1: Oh, sure. So when I was in college, I was really excited by a historian who taught me my junior year in college. And it was a course, today we would call it gender history, but back then it was called women's history. And I decided that when I was going to do a senior thesis, it was going to cross both of my majors, which by then were Judaic studies, Jewish studies, and U.S. history. So I was looking for a topic with my advisor, who was this marvelous women's history professor, and she recommended this woman named Lillian Wald, whom she knew would cross both Jewish history because she was Jewish at birth and also would cross U.S. history because she was really invested in U.S. currents of progressive era activism. So I took this on as my senior thesis in college and then decided that I liked history so much, I wanted to go on to get a doctorate in history. I got into a program in New England and ended up doing a doctoral thesis on Lillian Wald that built on my honors thesis. And then When I got a job, I turned the doctoral dissertation into a book. And that was the book that was published by UNC in um, 2008. So I've spent many, many years with Wald. I'm generally introduced in forums where I talk about Wald as uh, somebody who spent a lot of time with Wald. And indeed, I
0: have. (laughs) So can you tell me who was Lillian Wald?
1: Sure. So she was born in 1867 after the Civil War and she was born in Ohio, but she always thought of her hometown as Rochester, New York, which is where she was raised. She moved there when she was young. She was the child of immigrants, German Jewish immigrants who were, you know, relatively Americanized and assimilated, weren't particularly Jewishly affiliated although her grandparents were and she was a little bit, which I talk about in the biography. She, very early on in her life, decided that she didn't want to be a society wife like her moms and aunts and even her older sister and she decided once she saw her sister giving birth that she wanted she sort of chatted with the nurse who was attending her sister's child's birth and she decided she wanted to be a nurse, so she ended up going to One of the few careers that was available to women at the time was to become a nurse. So she went to nursing school. And after nursing school, she graduated in 1891. She ended up going to a school where she could have been a doctor. It was one of the few women's medical colleges open at the time. And so this was her first exposure to New York City because she was an upstate person. I don't think it's a mistake that she chose a women's world. She was a lesbian. She was very nurtured and sustained by these women's relationships. Um, While she was there, she was exposed for the first time to the poverty of the Lower East Side, which was then, at the turn of the 20th century, just completely overwhelmed with immigrants who were fueling the industrial growth of the United States, garment trades and other industries. And a lot of, well, she herself, and then since then many others quote her when they talk about this experience as her baptism of fire, right? So she's young and she's got these nursing skills, and she's exposed to the poverty of the Lower East Side for the first time. And basically, she decides to settle on the Lower East Side and open what was called a settlement house. First, they offered nursing care to the immigrants, the industrial immigrants of the Lower East Side, and it just expanded. And her work, begun in the 1890s, is now still living. The legacies. Live on at both the Visiting Nurse Service of New York and Henry Street Settlement, which is still on the Lower East Side. So it was healthcare on a sliding fee scale, often for free for the desperately poor, that then expanded into social work and theater work and all the kinds of things that you still see flourishing at Henry Street, which is turning 125 this year. It's a great place. Wow. Um, Yeah. So I say this because her legacy lies in nursing and social work, but also in a sort of like, marvelous, universalist philosophy that says that everybody, even a relatively wealthy white woman from upstate New York, has a responsibility to help people who are less fortunate and born into less fortunate circumstances. That was her philosophy that guided her nursing and her social work. And she protested war. She fought for women's suffrage. She was a civil rights advocate. She was an immigrant rights advocate. She took the side of labor in many labor disputes. She really tried to apply that philosophy across the board to all these really important 20th century campaigns, you know, that we're still benefiting from in many different ways today.
0: So what was it about her that made her advocate this hard for so many people? Like, so many people were exposed to poverty and maybe had backgrounds in nursing as well, Mm -hmm. but they didn't do the things that Lillian Wall did. So What was it about her that that drove her to be the person she was?
1: Well, you know, when you write a book about somebody, you try to dig deep into their motivations, right? And so my sort of scholarly take on that was that because her family had benefited from a pretty liberal um, spirit of the times in upstate New York as Jewish immigrants, it was a pretty liberal place. It was The Erie Canal was connected to Rochester. There were abolitionist campaigns in Rochester, women's rights campaigns. That spirit of sort of liberal tolerance and acceptance, I think she carried with her and brought with her to New York. I think also, you know, she was in very much a women's world. It was so attractive to me when I was young um, to think about all these women trying to find a place for themselves, right, as women without even having the right to vote. So I think there was a a sense that women were responsible for care and nurturing. And so they took that, you know, almost imperative, but certainly that sort of conventional idea out into the public sphere and thought of themselves as needing to care for these immigrants and these, you know, to undo white supremacy. Like they could have that power if society would be willing to give it to them. So they carved out the space for themselves trying to do this work. Mm
0: -hmm. How did she change the fields of nursing and public health while she was working?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when she was involved, she was one of the first Jewish nurses to be a professional, first of all. It was largely Christian nurses. It was also a lot of um, charity organizations, employed nurses. She was very intent on having them separate from any charity work, She wrote early on about the fact that they carried municipal badges, so they were seen as, you know, sort of employees, not technically, but of the city, but having that official status. She really wanted public health to be seen as a right of citizenship for all people. So I think if we think about it today, like the language of today would be, I think, more holistic. Like she thought everybody was entitled to the right, not just to health care, but ultimately she was working like many women, again, very gendered, for playgrounds in New York City, which didn't exist before she got there for um, safe milk, because you would get milk from milk stations at the time before refrigeration was widespread. So I think she professionalized it. She made it obvious, something this country still hasn't learned, that healthcare should be a human right, right? But she also had a very holistic approach to it, to see that it wasn't these people's fault that they were poor, but it was the environment that was leading to, you know, it was deprivation that was to blame for all of the problems, um, criminality and other kinds of sort of desperate products of the poverty that they were living with day in and day out. So she, I think she had a sort of a right way of thinking about things, which is to uplift people and to give them their basic rights and people will make good choices and help others and better society as a whole. It was part of her sort of universalist philosophy, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you mentioned earlier a little bit about the legacy, her legacy that lives on in the settlement house. Is there any right. other way that her work shows up today in nursing or beyond? That's a good question.
1: I mean, her settlement, I, I just love Henry Street so much. And they just put up an exhibit for the 125th anniversary that really draws a spotlight on her. So, that institution is still in its original home, the staircase. That it was there, you know. Of course, a lot of the longtime employees think it's haunted. <laughs> so, whether she shows up there or not, actually, um, I think in nursing, in social work, certainly in gendered history, right? I also think as we go back and try to think of LGBTQ heroes, you know, she alerts us to this very sustaining world of women in the early 20th century. I also, you know, with this past election of our 45th president, I was asked to talk about her in quite a few venues, right, to talk about her approach to immigrant rights, which I think is always a lesson, maybe never more urgent Mm -hmm. than it is right now, at least in my lifetime, because she, the quote I always go back to, she called immigrants new life and new blood for this country. And just talking about the energy that they bring to the United States and living in a time when that immigrants are demonized and their contributions are Erased or made invisible. I think that's a really important lesson that she still offers us. Too.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything that she did or maybe said that may surprise people?
1: In a good way? <laughs> I mean, oh, either way,
0: good, bad, yeah. uh, neutral.
1: Well, I mean, you know, again, when you are doing this research, you try to present all sides of the person. Mm-hmm. Um. And she held on to Stalinism into Mm. the 1930s, which I don't know if that means a lot to your listeners. But, you know, it was kind of a long time to hold on to the ideal without recognizing the evils that Stalin was doing. Mm. And that might be surprising. I think among liberals and leftists in the United States, it wasn't entirely uncommon. But it was when I, I remember, you know, finding out in graduate school and feeling a sense of disappointment with my hero, but also recognizing, you know, that she was a human and made errors in judgment. Um, I think people are often surprised to learn that she was gay. But again, I I think there's so much room for heroes of all kinds in our past, but it's a helpful thing to talk about when you talk about her legacy.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a thing that a lot of people are struggling with right now, recognizing people's whole lives and that people were complicated and trying to deal with all the elements of the things that they believed, their philosophies and that they did. So what do you want people to take away from Lillian Wall's story overall?
1: Well, I think, you know, as I say, the lessons about her lessons on immigration and a certain openness and the way we can all benefit from that openness is maybe her most urgent lesson today. But I also would argue that, not argue, but I would point out that Here is somebody born to privilege who made these choices based on her conscience, but more than that, right? It wasn't just about her sense, like, this is wrong and someone needs to do it and that someone could be me. It was also, she always used this language of mutual responsibility. And, you know, you see this in Gandhi's writings and in Dr. King's writings, this idea that, you know, if one of us isn't free, then none of us are free. And I think Wald brought that into her social work, into her public health work, into her anti-militarism, her work for civil rights and immigrant rights. So I would say that that sense of mutual responsibility is really key to her legacy and also has a certain urgency today. It's easy to shelter ourselves off from the things that are bad in the world and the suffering in the world, but it it is our obligation to, to look hard at it and figure out our own role in undoing some of those evils. I guess that's what I would say.
0: And when she was working, did she get any pushback from people, from anybody who criticized her or, you know, had strong reactions to the work that she was doing?
1: Oh, definitely. Yes, of course. She. I mean, again, so I was working with some of the criticisms. I probably didn't engage as much as new scholars will find, but some people thought her work should be more Jewish. There were those who really wanted to claim her for the Jewish world, which she really pushed back against. She was born to a Jewish family, but never really affiliated. So I think the idea that people get to choose their own identities, right, and liberate themselves from the ones that they feel don't fit with their sense of themselves, I think that's important. Um, so the other piece that I ran into, and this is pretty common knowledge, is that when she fought against U.S. Um, involvement in World War I, she lost funding from some pretty famous people. They really thought that the U.S. was justified in getting involved. But she, interestingly, fascinatingly, understood war to work against the interest of all people. She knew that spending that might well have gone toward public health initiatives was going to be diverted into militarism and weapons and fighting. So she really talked about being anti-war in the vein of being for public health which is, you know, so radical. I mean, I think we more associate that kind of thinking with Johnson's War on Poverty and people understanding that the War on Poverty funds were diverted into Vietnam. But here's somebody having that conversation, putting that into the public sphere around World War I, which is pretty radical.
0: Yeah, it's, her, her story so interesting because there are so many parallels, and this was a century ago. So yeah. is there anything else that you would like to add? anything about Lillian Wald or anything that you've been thinking about that, that came up while we were talking? I don't think so.
1: I just, I'm really glad we're talking about her because as you say, I think she's, I teach a course on the 1920s and a century ago, things were so bad in this country. I mean, lynching and the Red Scare and crackdowns on immigrants. And we're living through an era that is so frightening in terms of the way state power is being used to oppress and marginalize and sanction violence. Against women, against immigrants, against LGBTQ. So I would say that, you know, she stood for kind of the best of what state power can do, which can connect and enlighten and uplift rather than push down.
0: Yes, so true. Yeah. I'm glad that we got to talk about her today and share me her too. story with everybody because I'm sure there are a lot of people who had no idea about her. So thank you again for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it.
0: If you want to know more about Lillian Wald, you can read Marjorie's book, Lillian Wald, A Biography. You can be on the lookout for more special episodes on Sundays this month to honor women's contributions to history. But until then, see you tomorrow for another nugget from history.